I wrote so many things where I was sure this is it, this is the one. And looking back, it certainly wasn't, but it taught me like how to rhyme or it taught me how to structure. It taught me some skill that got me closer to where I needed to be. So um, after I started in earnest when I was 39, it took me four years, um, 126 rejections during those four years. And then I sold Sophie Squash, which was my first book. manuscript of your own? Need help revising that manuscript or your query? Or maybe you just want help with comps and agent research, or your pitch could use some love? Check out Justin Colon's new editorial services. He offers everything from full manuscript critiques with Zoom call to assistance with comp titles and brainstorming sessions. And if you can't decide what package is right for you, no worries. All of Justin's services can be purchased a la carte style, so mix and match whatever works best for you. And if you're looking for even more guidance on your journey to publication, check out the Kidlit Hive's newest offering, From Idea to Publication, with senior editor at Charlesbridge, Karen Boss. In this six-week class, Karen will walk you through the journey of getting that shiny new idea, polishing up that manuscript, selling your story, and seeing it on the shelf. Whether you're a beginner or intermediate writer, you'll walk away with the invaluable knowledge of the publishing world, including writing, process, expectations, and surprises. Sign up today at thekidlithive.com. This is You May Contribute a Verse. I'm Brenna Jennerette, Kidlit author and co-host of this podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Munkin, Kidlit author, dad, and science communicator, and podcast wizard, John Seymour, author-illustrator, family man, and senior informatics analyst. In honor of the 10th anniversary of Sophie's Squash, written by Pat Zietlow Miller and illustrated by Anne Wilsdorf, we are releasing Pat's verse show episode as a special bonus episode for August. Sophie Squash is the perfect example of so many things, pacing, word choice, heart, and structure, but the story behind the story is what I find to be the most important. In the opening clip, Pat talks about how Sophie Squash was rejected, a lot. But like any writer who wants to make it, Pat kept writing and revising and submitting. Sophie Squash not only got published, but it got Pat her agent, Joan Paquette, at Aaron Murphy Lit. And it went on to receive four starred reviews, the Ezra Jack Keats New Writer Honor and the Charlotte Zolito Honor. So if you've ever gotten a rejection, ever thought about giving up, or ever been frustrated by the publishing industry, this episode is for you. Happy 10th anniversary, Pat and Sophie. What are we here to talk about? <laughs> Pat, thank you for moving, uh, switching the conversation. I've been up since six o'clock uh, on corporate corporate calls with people from Germany. So I'm really... Oh, well, no, I was happy mm -hmm. to do it. <laughs> I remember corporate mm -hmm. life. That's right. Pat, you have a background in banking, right? I'm insurance, insurance, actually. Okay. Which is almost as boring as banking. <laughs> yeah. And so how did you... How did you make that switch from insurance to picture books? Because those are like well, way different. Yeah, except I always worked in communications for insurance. So I was always in public relations or communication. So I was writing about insurance, hopefully in a way that made it understandable to people that didn't know insurance. But to do that, I had to like learn it first. So luckily, I was almost always doing something writing related. Um, but I always knew deep inside me that I really wanted to write picture books. So, you know, for a while I did both. Um, and then about two and a half years ago, I reached the point where I was like, okay, I can just do the books. And that was like wonderful. Oh my gosh. Amazing. I mean, to reach that point in your career to just be like, yeah, I can, I can do this. There was a, there was a um, thread on our discord uh, PB workshop um, server earlier today about like big pie in the sky dreams. And a lot of people said that a lot of people were just like, I just want to, I just want to write. Like, I just want to be able to sustain this as a career, you know? That was always my goal, and it's really hard to do. I mean, the vast majority of writers I know either have a full-time job or have a partner with a really good job that allows them to do this. Um, I, I was eight to ten books in before I hit the point where I could not do both. Um, and the only reason that I could is because Be Kind was on the New York Times bestseller list and is still selling really, really well. Um, and I've got like twice a year, I get royalties off that, you know, plus everything else I do. Um, but I spend a lot of time like with a financial planner going, is this even possible? You know, 
and I, I mapped out like, what do I spend and what are my bills and what, because you can't guarantee money coming in as a picture book writer. There's just no guarantee. You could have a really great six months off a royalty check and then it could not. Your book could go out of print. You could go two years without selling anything new, which has happened to me at points in my career. You know, so you just, it's so hard to predict. In fact, my, the accountants had me send like, what was my writing income from the last 10 years? And it ranged from zero, you know, when I was starting out to when, when Be Kind was on the New York Times list, it was over a hundred thousand, you know, but like, there's no predictability, you, wanna, you know, you, you give the um, accountants and so we really had like uh, extreme conniption fits uh, by <laughs> just saying like, prepare, yeah, prepare for uncertainty. Like, well, <laughs> We figured out what's the bare minimum I have to bring in as a writer every year to, you know, pay my bills. And so then we came up with the plan. If it wasn't coming in off book sales and royalties, could it come in off speaking fees? Could it come in off school visits? Could it come in off freelance? You know, and so I, I kind of watch and say, what am I doing and, and what what needs to happen? But I, I do realize I'm, I'm really fortunate that I'm in a position where I can do that. Do you, I mean, do you, you think you must think of yourself? as a, you are a picture book author that is your primary source of income but do you do you think of yourself more broadly yes. and we've talked about this in another conversation more broadly as a like a diversified writer still or is it is so much of your work still centered on picture books i mean i know i can do other things i mean i, I was a journalist to start out with i was a newspaper reporter and then i worked in corporate communications but now almost everything i write is picture books. So I, in my head, I'm a picture book writer. I know I can do the other stuff, but I write picture books. Yeah. Do you also write um, different genres with it? I mean, like chapter book or middle grade, have you done any anything in those? I, I tried writing a middle grade. It went out on sub. Um, it got lovely rejections. <laughs> um, and I have, I've been saying this for years, I have an idea for another middle grade, but picture books are really my mm. sweet spot. And so um, maybe at some point I'll try a middle grade, but really, I, every time I think I want to, I end up writing three picture books instead. <laughs> we, that's a sign, right? Yeah, yeah that's a good yeah. sign. <laughs> I mean, I, you gotta know yourself. I feel really simpatico with that. And I feel like so much of your experience resonates with me as former journalist, corporate communicator, uh, someone who writes picture books. I almost feel sometimes like uh, like the short form writing that I've always done in my professional career has kind of ruined me for uh for writing longer form pieces like all i know how to do is sort of like yes. set thesis execute you know sub a thousand words um and and make it make sense to a you know a five-year-old audience <laughs> it's always my corporate <laughs> when you're a journalist or a corporate communicator it's like how can you because people don't want to read what you're writing usually and they're busy and so what you write has to stand out to them it's got to be mm. short it's got to be entertaining engaging and get to the point and so that's how I know how to write. And that's how I pride myself on writing. Um, and it's funny because the, um, the one middle grade that I wrote that got all the great rejections, I showed it to a friend of mine who's written middle grade NYA. And they said, geez, Pat, describe something already. But you, know, you, don't, you're just, you know, because the illustration showed or you don't need totally. it. And so, it <laughs> you know, that's really funny because I've read, I, I've read certain other books recently that are you know really well received they've got you know they're on all these lists and whatever but I find them like I cannot get through them because I'm like why are we still describing the flower in the garden like move on right so it's like I kind of have that too like I don't know if that's just how my brain works or if it's picture books or whatever but it's like yeah like like get get to it already like I don't want all the descriptions so like <laughs> I'm coming from the other side so yeah I totally get that I sympathize <laughs> don't want to describe all this stuff. Let the pictures do it. <laughs> um, well, Pat, can we can we back up to the to the beginning? I want to know how you started in picture books. Like like what was the first thing you wrote and like how did that go? Did you did you sub something that wasn't ready just like the rest of us and then, you know, had to go oh, back yeah. to the drawing board and like Wait till you see what I'm going to read at the, <gasps> the end. It's horrible. Oh, I can't um... wait. I can't wait. It's horrible. <laughs> so I first started wanting to write picture books when I was in college. I was a sophomore in college. I was 19. And I thought, I just really want to do this. But again, showing how old I am, Google did not exist when I was a 19-year-old sophomore in college. There was no way to like say, how do you do this? And so I sat down at my Electrolux typewriter and I 
wrote a draft of a picture book and I had read a lot. You know, I love picture books. I was always reading them. Um, I looked inside a book. I found an address. I sent it off to some random publisher just because I could find the address. And I got a Xerox rejection in the mail like four months later. And I thought, well, you know, I, I guess I tried and it didn't work out. Oh, well. Um, and so I stopped. And then 20 years went by. And when I was 39, now the internet existed. And I thought, well, okay, I didn't really try last time. Plus, I'm older and smarter now. Um, and so I started doing like a ton of research. You know, I joined SCWI and I went to conferences and like pretty much every moment I wasn't working or parenting, I was either reading picture books or researching them. And the benefit of being a journalist is you know how to find things out. And so, you know, I interviewed people and I started a blog and I was just writing, writing, writing. And most of it was really bad. Um, one of the things I'm going to reuse from that <laughs> period, but you know, that's how you learn. That's totally. how you, you know. I wrote so many things where I was sure this is it, this is the one. And looking back, it certainly wasn't, but it taught me like how to rhyme or it taught me how to structure. It taught me some skill that got me closer to where I needed to be. So um, after I started in earnest when I was 39, it took me four years, um, 126 rejections during those four years. And then I sold Sophie Squash, which was my first book. And all the rejections weren't on Sophie Squash. The rejections were on like, you know, a whole variety of, really not ready stuff. I think Sophie Squash got 15 or 20 rejections before it sold. And it went through like five or six different versions because I was still figuring out what I was doing. Wow. And Sophie Squash, I mean, what a debut because that book is incredible. And it's still, I mean, that's still on shelves. It had, it won an award, didn't it? Oh yeah. It won um, the Ezra Jack Keats New Writer Honor, yes. a Charlotte Zalato Honor, a Golden Kite, a Crystal Kite. Oh my gosh. And it's still in print next month. So like, I really got lucky so not, out of the gate. Yeah. Not just friend. an award. Sorry. All the awards. The awards. Sorry. I, okay. <laughs> wow. It's the most yeah, honored I mean, of all my books. <laughs> wow. That, I mean, that's incredible. And was that, so just, just to sidestep a little. So was that your sub to a publisher or did you have an agent where you had you always been repped by Joan or how did that I did not have an agent at that time I was wow. sending to any publisher that would accept you know um subs without an agent agent um and so yeah I sold that one on my own and then I got my agent like shortly after that um who I'd seen her speak at an SCWI conference and she's been my agent ever since and it gets a lot of credit for the career I've had Wow. Yeah, we had um, we had Tara Lazar on last last week, and she also, you know, she had said, yeah, she's been with Joan for you know quite a while, almost her whole career. So, yes. did Tara's amazing. Joan is yeah, amazing. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, you're amazing. Like, it's not. Yeah, it's no small. It's no small feat to have you know gotten her as an agent. I feel like like the combination of the two has just like exploded both you know everybody's career and she also I said this last week too but I just saw the announcement like a couple weeks ago like she just announced a three book deal herself so like Joan is also yeah Joan has written picture book middle grade YA and now adult I mean Joan is super talented incredible and she so you saw her speak at SCBWI so did you did you sub or sorry did you query to her based on that like you had seen her so you had an opportunity to query okay Yep. Because like when, for people that don't know, if you go to an SCBWI conference and there's an agent or an editor there, um, you, you get a chance to query them. Um, and I hadn't queried Joan right after the event because I just didn't think, so at the time they were saying, well, if you don't illustrate two, your odds of getting an agent as a picture book writer are small. And so I thought, well, what's the point? So I didn't do anything. Um, and then after I sold Sophie Squash, another writing friend of mine, said, well, you're going to try to get an agent, right? And I was like, no, you know, no one's going to want me. And she was like, Pat. <laughs> and so basically to get Jessica Vitalis, who is a middle grade author, off my case, I, I sent it in to, to Joan. And Joan was like, I, like, I sent it to her and I got an email back that's like the email you dream of. It says, oh my gosh, you're so talented. When can we talk on the phone? And I was like, oh my God. Right. You know, so I owe Vitalis lunch for life because I wouldn't have done it if she hadn't like pushed me. Wow. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And I, I, as somebody back in the query trenches now looking for an agent, you know, I've researched Joan and she's incredible. And I've talked to a bunch of her clients and, you know, of course, like I would love to query her, but you have to see her speak or, you know, have some sort of in. So anyway, so I just putting it out there, I've got my eyes on, you know, where she's going to be speaking next. So I can like, you know, try to try to get my in. But anyways, yeah, it just, I mean, wow, incredible. That's awesome. How, so how much of that 
um, do you think was helped or informed by Sophie Squash already already existing? How you mean getting Jonas? And yeah, 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 yeah. Starting that relationship. Yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't think I would have gotten Jonas an agent if I hadn't had Sophie Squash like with the sale attached to it. But the one thing I respect about Joan is she didn't just say, oh, you've got an offer, fine, I'll rep you. She said, what else do you have? And so I sent her like five or six other things, which is important because when agents sign you up, they want you to have a, a body of work. you know. And then she said, well, who have you sent them to and what have they said? And, and several of them I had sent out on my own. And she was like, well, okay, you know, it looks like you've, you've tried to sell these and it hasn't gone, you know, so she was very thoughtful about, did she think that she could take me on and, and have it be successful? And I'm, I'm so glad she decided to do that, you know, but no, I wouldn't have gotten her, I think at all, if I hadn't had Sophie Squash. And not to suggest she, that, oh, sorry. yeah, sorry. I mean, not, not to suggest that, like, we've joked around about this before that you almost have to have a book deal in hand before you can get an agent as like a, you know, a proof point for your, uh, your credibility. Not to say that that's the case, but it certainly it certainly helps and it certainly uh, speaks it to it speaks i mean again to your commitment to the craft and to being knowledgeable about the area by you know you've got this this book that you've seen through to to the point at which you're making a deal um it just helps it helps helps you per, perspective people who are going to be engaging in that kind of relationship with you understand what you're bringing to the table i did so much work i mean and, and i know a lot of people do but you have to treat, I treated it like it was a part-time job in addition to my full-time job. You know, I mean, I read hundreds upon hundreds of picture books, like, and not just to read them for fun, but to like analyze them. And I was writing, I stopped watching TV because like the only time I had was after my kids were in bed to really work. So I stopped watching TV. I basically was like, I I lived with a much messier house. I just, you know, I decided that was my priority and that's what I was going to do. And, you know, for that four year period, I mean, honestly, like I went to bed thinking about picture books. I woke up thinking about picture books and I did all my other stuff, but like it was always like there. That's how much I wanted it, you know, and, and um, I did I did the work. Yeah, I think I think that's an important thing to point out. Like we've we've touched on this several times in other conversations, but that that like mental that mind switch about you know, for, I mean, first of all, you know, what is it you want from this picture book writing thing? Do you want it as a full-time career? You know, lots of people don't, and that's totally fine. Yep, and that's perfectly yeah, fine. Yeah, but if you do, then, you know, you have to make that switch. And even though you're not getting paid like a full-time job, like you have to work at it like a full-time job. And you have to think about it in sort of big picture, long-term, like, what does this look like? How are you going to make this sustainable? Like, what things do you say yes to? What do you not say yes to? Like, for instance, I, I love a contest, but I had to sort of like tell myself, no, like you cannot participate in any more contests because it kept derailing me from what I was trying to do. And so I was getting really like spread out, just things were not, you know, work, like I wasn't polishing things the way that I wanted to because I kept like, you know, getting off track. But so that for me was one of the things where I was like, look, you have to learn how to say no and like sort of, you know, protect your time as a writer because otherwise, you know, it's not going to get done. Yeah, you have to put your energy behind the thing that's most important to you. And, you know, if, if you don't, you're, you're never going to reach your goals, you know. Um, and I think for a lot of people and a little bit with me, that can be kind of scary to do because, you know, you want something so bad, you know, like you want it. But sometimes when you want it that much, it almost stops you from going for it because there's that fear of what if I try and it doesn't work out? What if I put everything I have behind this thing I really want and I still fail? You know, which could happen, I mean, you know. Um, and so I think sometimes, and in my case, that, that initially, I think that's during that 20-year period where I didn't do anything. Because it's real great to say, well, someday I'm going to do that, you know, and then you can feel happy for a minute. But at some point, you've got to be like, no, I'm going to do it now, or I'll be 80, and it'll be the thing I regret that I didn't try. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up looking yeah, at I feel, it. I feel like this is like a, this is a targeted uh, intervention toward me to get me to actually commit to my writing as a person who's a parent of little kids and, and working a corporate communications job. Except I'm already older than 39. I don't have those 20 years. It's okay. It's all right. You can still do it, Josh. Yeah, yeah jo Josh right. and I chat often about, you know, like what we're working on and whatever. And Josh is like, you know, especially recently because he just switched jobs. So it's a new job on top of, you know, having a full-time job anyways. But he's just like, I, you know, I, I have this like 
afternoon to write and I'm actually going to get some stuff done. So, you know, it just is like, yeah, your time gets just eaten up. And if it doesn't, if you don't carve something out, then you just, yeah, then it's not going to happen. Yeah. Less, less about me and more about you, Pat. How, how early, how early was it where, you know, was it in the conversation with Joan around your goals or only was it after you had um, had a bit more maturity that you had set the goal like I I, want to do this for a living like I want to live breathe eat sleep picture books as my job it had been my goal pretty much ever since I started trying at 39 I mean I knew that it was a long shot but but it was always like the ultimate goal out there I remember early on I was talking to Joan and it was in an in-person meeting. I mean, Joan lives in Boston, so normally we do everything over the phone, but we were in the same place. And she said, is that what you want to do, write full-time? And I said, yes. And bless her, she said, well, if anybody can do it, you can, which I thought was just a great thing to, you know, hear from your agent that they believe in you. But, you know, I mean, it still took, you know, eight plus years, you know, or however many, I can't remember, you know, before I was financially at a point. You know, and, and okay, I always say this to other people when they ask how you do it. I mean, Everybody's situation is different. Um, I was the the main breadwinner for my family. My husband's employed, but with my corporate job, I made more money, you know, and my health insurance was through me. I had two kids. So someone who's in a different situation, you know, where maybe they're working a job that's a supplemental job rather than the main job, maybe they have insurance through a spouse, they might be able to do it a lot easier, you know, but I had to like figure out a way to like replace, you know, and then like we, my oldest daughter had was in college and we were paying for her college. And I wasn't going to say to my youngest daughter, well, sorry, I'm writing picture books full time. You're on your own, you know? So I had to figure out how I also pay for my youngest daughter's college to be fair. You right. know? <laughs> so I, you have to, everybody's situation is different. If, if you were younger and you didn't have that, I mean, you know, you might be able to do it a little more easily than I was able to pull it off. Yeah. Does, I, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I like, <laughs> I like the notion of uh, what you said, sort of like, you're replacing, you're sort of like replacing yourself with this other, you know, you're replacing this like insurance with this other way to pay for insurance. And, you know, like little by little, you sort of are able to like cobble together what is now, you know, a full-time picture book career, but you, you have Mm -hmm. to do it sort of like a little at a time to make the switch. Otherwise I think, yeah, with, with little kids, like most of us have little kids. Cause I think that's what inspires a lot of us to start writing picture books in the first place. So like, you know, making sure that that is covered is yeah, that's a hard, it's a hard position to be in and to figure that out. It's time for this week's book reviews from Josh. There are several really good takeaways in Caitlin Arison's Clovis keeps his cool illustrated by Eve Farb beyond the obvious. Don't be a bull in a tiny shop. First, is knowing what you don't want to be is sometimes as important as what you do. Second, is honor family, but don't let that honor keep you from your passions. Third, is fudge the haters, but don't let people walk all over you. Caitlin packs a surprising amount of message in this book. While Josh assumes Eve Farb must have somehow taken inspiration for Clovis's character, designed from Henry Cavell, Last point, mad props to Caitlin for turning such a ubiquitous idea like bull in a china shop into something so fun. From John, we're all learning new things every day, but just in case you haven't had your daily dose of learning yet, did you know that wood frogs actually quack? Or that some frogs hibernate during summertime to avoid drought through a process called estivation? Or that one of the most enjoyable informational kids books I've ever read about frogs is none other than Annette Whipple's Ribbit, The Truth About Frogs. With its Q&A format, stunning photos, and awesome illustrations, Annette helps to answer all of our froggy questions, like why frogs don't freeze to death, what sounds they make, and more. And my review for this week is Kel Gilligan's Daredevil Stunt Show, written by Michael Buckley and illustrated by Dan Santab. Behold the dangerous, broccoli-eating, potty-conquering Kel Gilligan. What will he try next? Surely not, sleeping alone? Oh wait, he's going to attempt it? Grab your own copy and find out what happens next. In this action-packed, show-stoppingly illustrated, hilarious tale of stunts. And don't forget to get your own reviews and library requests in. It's the number one way to help an author's sales. Have a rad critique partner who helped you crack that manuscript? Did someone reach out to tell you how great your writing is at just the right moment? 
Help support the podcast and the Kidlit community by shouting them out on the show. And let me take just a minute here to shout out my own critique group who did just those things this week. My critique partners are amazing. Emily, Holly, thank you for lifting me up when I'm feeling down. Angel, Tate, thank you so much for encouraging my creativity. Sharon, you are the best at writing down descriptive words and helping me with language. And Mari Rodriguez, you are amazing at lyrical language and making things shine. Thank you so much, you guys. I wouldn't be where I am without you. Also, the Kidlib Podcast has merch now. Verse Show merch is designed by the Maddie Frost, and you can help support more episodes like this, and it looks cute too. Or leave us a review, because it really helps. Find all the links on Twitter, or go to brennagenerette.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter and even get the podcast delivered right to your inbox. And now, back to our show. Um, does or did, I guess does, um, do your goals, do is the right verb here. Okay, we've landed on <laughs> the right verb. Do, do your goals inform how you approach what you're willing to take contract-wise? I'm not speaking specifically to, um, to like advances or royalty percentages or anything, but but it it, it must come into play where you know you want to look at a, at a publisher that's going to back your work and know that they're going to go into potentially you know multiple printings that they're gonna they're gonna um, continue to push uh, your back catalog as something that can continue to be sort of an, an income stream for you in the future. Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And it's something that, that it seems like would work. But for me, if I think that way, then I, I end up not writing the things that I think are the most successful. Like when I'm thinking about what am I going to write, it's got to be something I'm passionate about. It's got to be something I feel good about. And then those are the ones that tend to be more successful than if I try to like overanalyze the, the possible financial elements of it. And plus it's so hard to predict. I mean, and, and luckily I have publishers that I've sold to and have good relationships with. So we usually then go back to them, you know, first and, and if they say no, then we expand. But, you know, so I have editors that I've worked with and known and trust, and hopefully they feel the same way about me. Um, so I, I, I very rarely feel like the book's not going to get, you know, the love that it needs. Um, sometimes you have an editor and they acquire a project and they're really excited about it. And then they go to a different publisher or they leave the industry and your book is sort of sitting there and it gets sort of assigned to somebody who might not be as passionate about it or has way too much work, more honestly. Um, and that's happened to me a couple times where I think that like maybe the book has gotten a little lost, but that's just business, you know? And, and I always try to do a lot of promo on my end, which is something also I think, like if you look at how much of my full-time writing is spent writing and how much is spent doing promotion, a lot is spent doing promotion. And I worked in corporate communication, so I know how to do it. But but there are times I've had to remind myself, look, I'm a writer, not a marketer. And so, you know, <laughs> I'm going to step back and actually write something. Yeah, I actually, I just read um, a blog about how you and E.E. E. Charlton, thank you, um, co-authored Lupe Lopez. And then there, and then a second, a second, um, like two book deal as well. So, and you had said in the interview, um, that, yeah, you had taken on a lot of the marketing because that's just something that you knew how to do when you were comfortable with. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's a good, I mean, it just, it speaks to the fact that we talk about that a lot, like, you know, do the thing that you are comfortable with and that you want to do, or you know how to do or whatever. And then the rest, you know, you can sort of, it's lucky if you have a co-author and you can divide up those things and then, you know, they can do something else. But um, I, my, my point in bringing that up was to segue into um, the co-authorship and how that and how that came about, because I feel like you don't see a lot of picture books being co-authored, right? No, no, I, you don't. You might nope. be the first, actually. I, I can't think of any picture books off the top of my head, you know, um, middle grade. And there's a couple. YA, yes, but just just to give credit to other yeah. people, um, um, Catherine Helling and Debbie Hembrook have a series of books that they have out that they've co-authored. And then Liz Garten Scanlon and Audrey Vernick have picture books that they've written together and then they also have separate writing okay. careers. So it has happened, but it's not not as common. Um, but but E and I had been friends for a really long time. Um, e had been writing middle grade YA, had won the Stonewall Awards for their Fat Angie book. Um, and we would always just talk about books on the phone. 
And one day they said, well, you know, I've got an idea for a picture book. It's based on something that happened to me um, in kindergarten. I said, well, you should totally write it. And they went, well, you know, no, I'm like, you can do it, you know. So for a while I was like, just write it, yeah. just write it. And then they sent it to me and I looked at it and it was this awesome story, this awesome idea, you know, but but it wasn't picture bookified, you know, it was, you know, and so I'm like, oh, well, if we just, and I started like moving stuff around, you know, um, and I sent it back to Ian thought, well, they might hate me. You know? <laughs> like, oh, and so then we started going back and forth. And so like, then we ended up, you know, like, I mean, yeah, and then the second one, and then now we have um, A Girl Can Build Anything that's out that we wrote together. Um, and writing with another author is, is just a totally different experience because, you know, I always say when you write on your, write by yourself, you win every argument. But when you're writing with somebody else, you know, you have to be much more flexible. Yes. Um, and we have very different writing approaches. So, you know, there were some bumps as we figured out, like, the best way to, to make it work. Um, but it did, and that's a good thing. Had E written any picture books before that, or is that initially why they approached you? Because they were like, Look. That's initially why they okay. approached me, yeah. I mean, they absolutely could. They absolutely could write picture books by themselves. Yeah, but. yeah, totally. I just, yeah, I was just wondering, you know, what the what the thought process was. Because I can see how coming yeah. from, like, middle grade and YA or vice versa, where you were like, look, I've got this idea, but I don't really know, you know, can you sort of help, you know, like, picture bookify it, as you said, or, you know, vice versa. Right. It's like the time I tried to write a middle grade and they're like, just describe yes. something with a picture book. It's like, you don't need that. You don't need that. Do <laughs> uh, I, I could not find this in my, uh, my brief research over, over E. Um, e, e, I presume is agented because of their um, middle grade and YA career. Uh, but that agent is not Joan. Is that correct? No, it's Aaron Murphy. And what Joan, is, Joan okay. is part of the Aaron Murphy literary agency. So we're, we're members of the same agency but but e is repped by Aaron murphy and i'm repped you're, by your um agency cousins <laughs> i guess yes we're agency cousins <laughs> fair enough yeah so uh, i guess what i'm what i was going to get at is you know embarking on that is complicated for anybody that's going to co-author anything i mean it's so much simpler to i think part of what you were getting at in terms of should i co-author this or can i just offer some thoughts that are um you know critique partner like um, it's a whole other level of yes. collaboration but then also um, complication in approaching presumably publishers and the agency in how you negotiate a co-authored picture book I think it was easier that we were part of the mm. same agency for, for sure in terms of submitting it to publishers absolutely yeah does it yeah I was um, gonna say too yeah. yeah I mean I guess I, I, I want to pull that apart, I guess, a little bit more uh, because it, it yeah, it, it being from Aaron Murphy uh, affords a level of like you both come from the same direction toward a publisher. The illustrator then comes toward the publisher or they approach the illustrator from a, a different direction. Yes. And so it is not it's not as though and this would be much harder. It's not as though. Uh, Two, two authors are submitting and there's going to be two widely different contracts and it's going to be very sort of like complicated to, to figure out the, the logistics of right. it. There was one contract for the book for yeah. both of us that spelled everything yeah. out. Yeah. So be agented by the same, same, same agent <laughs> if you want to do that. <laughs> Um, yeah, you and you spoke about that a little bit in the interview that I had read about how, you know, it was it was sort of tips about how to go about co-authoring a book because yeah, you're your friends number one and then you're you also want to write this book together, but you had said, you know, you don't want to put your name on a book next to somebody that you don't respect, that their their right. work specifically because you can be friends and like picture books, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you like the work or the voice or whatever. Um, cause those are, you know, those are very different things, but to make sure that those right. things, and then I think putting it in a contract, like you had said, helps to sort of preserve the friendship because it's not about the friendship. It's about the business, which is like something totally separate so that it's, yeah, it seems really helpful to have it put in writing. And do you have Pat with the, um, the, um, a girl can build anything is that, so the second book is that a sequel to that book or is it an unnamed second book right now it's an unnamed second book we're hoping it will follow that same path we're thinking maybe a girl can solve anything about like you know math and engineering but but a lot of it depends how well the first book does you know so uh, the publisher is waiting to see you know 
how well the first book sells. And I guess if it doesn't, then the second book could be really anything that we choose to do jointly that they, they like. Oh, that's cool. It's cool to have a, a, like a sort of open canvas in that way because it sounds like, yeah, you have an idea that could be a second book. And then if you don't, then it's kind of fun to just start over and be like, okay, well, what do we want to write? Because that's, right. yeah, that's that's very cool. But hopefully it's the former. That the, that the book already under contract. Yeah, we're really, really hoping well. for the girl can solve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. That one that one comes out, or is it coming out or is it out? It's out. A Girl Can Build Anything, I think, came out, I should know this, in March. So it's been out for a, a okay. little bit. Mm-hmm. I was, because I was looking at the release dates for some, of, for some of your books, and I know one of them is coming out. Is that the second Lupe Lopez is still coming? The second Lupe just came out like two weeks just ago. Just came out. So yes. Okay. Yeah. I was trying yes. to build the timeline in my head and I got them switched, but yeah, right. Yeah, so it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty early to tell. Yeah. Like how sales might be right. doing on that one. Yeah. Cause they're yeah. both pretty new. And to be clear, um, Lupe Lopez was sold as two Lupe Lopez books. Is that right? I'm sorry, say oh, that again. Uh, Lupe, Lupe Lopez, the second book having, sorry, that's hard to say quickly <laughs> in my recap of the question. <laughs> that was sold as two Lupe Lopez books, like like the, um, oh, I'm yes, going to Yes, it was a two-book well. deal. Yeah. And, and it looks like there's going to be a third now, which that's is That's what I was getting at. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that's, that's exciting. That's awesome. Wow. Has... So because your partnership has been doing so well, has Eve decided to do any picture books on, like on their own or? They have ideas and I really hope they do, but they have several ideas that I think would be excellent. So I have, I, I'm actually quite confident that they will come oh, together. Oh, very cool. That's exciting. I transmitted I, so much wisdom. Yeah. Wow. I'm excited to see, I'm excited to see those hit the shelves. Um, I really don't think she needed or they needed much help from me. I mean, they're such an excellent writer and I've always, you know, respected so much what they produce that, you know, yeah. 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 It's not me. There's a version, here's a version of, I guess, what we've, what we've been talking about and a lot of what we talk about with individual authors in terms of the number of works produced versus the number of works that hit, hit the, the shelves. I'm, I'm interested to hear whether you and uh, E have, hit the market with a hundred percent of your shots or do you have, do you have co-authored works that are uh, sitting, sitting on the shelves that you've subbed together before? Like how is, how is that work? do not at the moment. Oh, bad in a thousand. <laughs> Usually what's happened is that yeah, <laughs> one of us has had an idea uh, and approached the other and said, what do you think about this? And then we talk about it a little bit and then we, we take a shot at writing it, but I think because we both have bodies of work, you know, that have been published, you know, we didn't have to go through that, that period. Like I did when I started out writing on my own, where I had this whole, like, you know, computer file of dead manuscripts, you know, we, we were able to get where we needed to be more quickly. Um, and so, yeah, we don't have things like just hanging around. It's like, we said, we're going to do this. And fortunately, knock on wood so far, the, the things we've created have sold. Um, that's, that's wonderful. That's amazing. Yeah. How, is that is it similar to your own your own writing? I mean, once once you got once you got agented, <laughs> I get rejected so often. And, um, so yeah, I have I have I'm, I'm guessing six maybe manuscripts right now that I think are done and finished and have been like floating around the the publishing sphere and getting nice rejections. You know, I mean, I will say the quality of my rejections has gone up as I've gotten better, um, but. <laughs> But, you know, it's still just finding that that fit, that editor that loves what you wrote and feels committed enough to it to, like, you know, offer you money is hard. Um, and the picture book market I've been hearing has been tightening up a little mm. bit. Um, it's getting harder to to sell a picture book. And, you know, in the market, it's cyclical. You know, it, it goes around. So um, I've been getting probably a higher percentage of no's than I have in the past. Um, but I've, I've sold a couple, too, and I've got more in the works. So you just got to, like... It's like a down period in the financial market. You've got to keep investing. You got to work through it, and you know, you'll come out on the other side eventually. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you and Joan sub more than one thing at a time, or what is her policy yes. on that? Yeah, as long as it does it does it have anything to do with other clients and what they've got out at the time? Or, like, are they? Does she stagger well, them in a way that's like? I can't speak to that with like a hundred percent knowledge yeah, but but i know sure. in the past like she she's like well we could send this to so-and-so an editor 
but I'm waiting on them for like these three other things. And so I think I'm going to send it here instead. So I think she does try to like not overload one editor with a zillion things from her clients at the same time. Yeah. Um, but usually it's more like, you know, you've worked with so-and-so before. This seems like it would be right up their alley. Or sometimes she'll say, you know, this editor has asked if I have anything new from you, which is a great spot to be in. And then so she'll what send something to that particular <laughs> editor. Um, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. But yeah. yeah. Okay. Cause yeah, you hear sometimes, you know, agents just have different strategies and sometimes um, like I've heard there's an agent out there who will only sub one thing at a time per client and then they sort of rotate through like, okay, well, it's not your turn yet. So like you have to wait, which, yeah, which for me, that would, that would drive me bananas. So, I, so it's something to, you know, it's something to ask before, you know, before you oh, get absolutely. agented, you know, just depending yeah. on like what you're looking for and the body of work and all of that. But um, yeah, I was just curious if that had any, you know, if, if it was like that with her. You know, and writers are so different too. I tend to be kind of prolific. So I've usually got a bunch of yeah. things, you know, where there are other writers who are like super talented, but they're more methodical. Like, you know, like every two years they've got a manuscript, you know? And so I think the approach then is different depending if they, you just have one thing every two years or if you've got like four things at once. Yeah, you know? totally. And I think, I think on the behalf of the agent, like for Joan, right. It, I mean, she's been doing this for a long time. So I'm sure she takes into account like, oh, okay, like, yeah, Pat is really prolific. And this is like the bandwidth I need in order to make sure that I get her books out. But, you know, so-and-so is not. And so I can also take them on because it's, it's you know, less of a time investment or whatever. And it's sort of like, you can sort of see what the timetable might look like. Because I know, you know, agents are also slammed, just like editors. Like everybody is, you oh, know, absolutely. super busy. And yeah. if Joan is also writing for her, you know, for her other full-time job, it's like, you know, how do you, how do you balance that and maintain the quality of agenting and the quality of writing and all of that stuff? So I'm sure like it, you know, that must be taken into account because uh, otherwise, like I, I, I get what you're saying because I'm also, I tend to be pretty prolific. Like I like to write a lot and I have a lot of stuff going all the time. Whereas like Josh, I think is more methodic and just sort of like thinks about things a lot and things usually come out a lot more polished than mine do. Like I write a lot, but it, it takes me a long time to get to where I want them to be. Whereas I think Josh thinks about them more, you know, to a polished state and then puts them down, which is, you know, neither is right or wrong, but I think, I think the difference of like productivity there is something to take into account. Pat, I was going to take issue with your use of the word methodical for how, how I in particular write, but you know, I guess it is. It's anxiety-based me methodological. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I... Thoughtful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, worrisome. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think about this, like, from, from an agent's perspective, too. Um, in, in terms of... So we joke, we joke about how often I... I reference my corporate communications job on the podcast, even though I don't, I don't specifically talk about it. Just go look up my LinkedIn if you're really curious. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I think about like our, like our media relations team who's tasked with maintaining good relationships with reporters. So they, they need to understand where the big outlets are, who might be likely to run the story and how to maintain good relationships with them. Every bit of good stuff that yeah. comes out of our business is not going to make it to the reporters. They're going to be really thoughtful about what messages to send, how to pitch that, how to frame that and how to create a, um, a sort of strong relationship with, um, with those outlets to, 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 to get something published. That's how strong, well-represented, thoughtful pieces get into magazines. Um, same thing for agents. They're tasked with lots of different people or lots of different small, tiny businesses and, and repping them in such a way that they're, they're maintaining good relationships and putting you in, um, in the right, the right hands. Can't just be that big shotgun approach, right? Yep. That's definitely true. Pet, have you, have you had any, um, um, experience with so Tara was on last week and she casually was just like yeah I pitched this um, idea to Joan and she was on a call with an editor and they were like oh yeah we want that like let's just make that happen and I was like wow okay that's just how that's just how these things go like has that has that been your no experience that has never happened to me <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, an issue that you take with Tara awesome. <laughs> 
Sarah and I are going to have to talk. Yeah, um, right, no, that's like, really awesome. <laughs> please tell me what happened there. Yeah, who was it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, the, the best thing I had, as I wrote one story once, sent it to Joan. Joan thought it was ready to go out because sometimes she comes back to me with, you know, ideas. And it sold in, I think, three days. And that's, that's my quickest success story is a sale in wow. three days. But there are other times where things go out and it's on the editor's desk for months, you know, while they get to it and think about it and show it to everybody else, you know, because there's a whole process to get something acquired that varies by publisher. You know, some editors can make the decision by themselves, but most have to, like, get it read by everybody else on the editorial team. And then it goes, they talk to marketing and sales and there's an acquisitions meeting that is not a sure thing. And so it can be this long process. So, so three days was like, you know, my huge success story. Yeah. Wow. And it's also, I mean, I, I so appreciate like the um, authenticity of your answer because I mean, you're Patsy Miller, like everybody knows your name, like New York Times bestseller, like, you know, I mean, but you still have manuscripts that get rejected and you still have stuff that sits mm-hmm. on an editor's desk, just like the rest of oh, us. Yeah. So it's like, it, it, I mean, it's not, it's not like, yay, that's happening to you too, but it's sort of like, uh, it's not, you know, it doesn't, it, it's yeah, it's just, yeah. it doesn't have any, it's not personal. Like everybody always says, it's not personal. And it's so hard it's not, because writing feels so personal, right? To the writer. So that is really hard to sort of um, distance yourself from. But I mean, it's it's nice to hear that, yeah, it really isn't personal. Like it's, it's not like, you know, they're cleaning out everything else from their inbox and they're like, Pat Miller's in my inbox, like screw everybody else. It's like, well, sorry, like you have to wait too, just like everybody else. So like, it's, yeah. It's just refreshing to hear, I guess, because you don't, you just assume like, you know, you and Tara and Adam Rex and whoever, like you, your name shows up and they're just like, yeah, we want whatever you, whatever you write, like give it all, you know? In fact, I've had some instances where uh, Joan has sent stories of mine out to editors I haven't worked with before. And usually like, you know, if they respond to say, hey, I got this, I'll be looking at it soon. Joan shares that with me, yeah. you know? Um, so there've been times where the editor's been like, oh, wow, you know, I'm really excited to see something from Pat, but then they still reject it, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not your name. It's not, it, you're only as good as the most recent thing you wrote. And even if the most recent thing you wrote is awesome, it might not be a fit for that particular editor that's looking at for it. They might've signed up something similar two weeks ago. It might not really see, fit their vision for their list. It just, it might not have been the right day for them to read it, you know? Um, or maybe it's not ready yet, you know, so there's just all those other factors. So they could like, like you and, you know, like what you've written before, but they're not just going to like universally sign up anything you write. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and this is, a, this is a version of the, the discussion that we had with Tara. Is it any easier when you've got all this work out? The answer being a, a clear no, because there are too many <laughs> I mean, factors. It is easier, but you still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's easier because you've got the experience and you know kind of how to navigate it, but there are so many uncontrollable, you know, factors. Um, right. And, and I think, you know, when you have people are more predisposed to think positively of you, if, you know, they've worked with you before and you haven't been an idiot and, you know, your books have done well. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, be an idiot. Patsy Miller says, don't be an idiot, our, guys. We got our episode title. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's a great piece of advice. Don't yeah. Be. <laughs> well, I do think there are some authors out there who are just so caught up in like this perfect thing they created. You know, you have to be willing to listen to the editor's advice and go, okay, let me go back and work on this some more. Let me think how else I could approach this rather than going like, no, no, we can't change any of my precious words. And I think that's where working in corporate communications really Mm -hmm. helped me because, you know, you write something, you think it's good, some like actuary or person with an MBA who can't write their way out of a paper bag looks at it and adds five paragraphs of incomprehensible junk that they want you to yep. put in there. And you've got to go, okay, what are they trying to say? How can I put that into what I wrote in a way that people will understand and still make them happy? And so I'm much more flexible when I get feedback from editors than I think somebody who maybe hasn't gone through that and gets really defensive about it. So that, yeah, I think the biggest way you can be an idiot is being too defensive. <laughs> <laughs> this, this puts me in mind, this puts me in mind, um, and I'm sorry to anyone who listens to this if I'm misrepresenting my memory because my memory is atrocious, but I feel like it was it was our buddy Justin Cologne that observed um, this, that bit about the actuary's feedback, like feedback that you get from anywhere. 
um, don't feel like you need to take it whole cloth, like rea- react to the reaction, but don't necessarily react to the the substance yes. of it. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I kept telling, like, because I was a manager in corporate communications for a while, and I'd be telling people that work for me, you don't have to put in word for word what they said, you know, but what are they saying? Reflect the reality in a way that's actually well-written. And sometimes you lose those battles. Sometimes you do end up having to do just what they said and you just cringe, but a lot of times you can still make yeah. it work. And I think too, I've heard, you know, the other side of the coin of not being an idiot is don't, don't be too defensive about your work, but also I think, you know, also in the same vein of not being so precious with the thing that you wrote that you are so, you know, tied to, you know, write something else, like take a break and write yeah. some other stuff. Like this is not the only put all thing. Your eggs in one basket. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Especially as a picture book writer. I mean, the odds of that one picture book selling and getting you to where you want to go. I mean, they're real low. Like it could happen. I mean, Sophie's squash happened, yeah, but you know, yeah. But even after Sophie's squash, it took me eight years to like be able to support myself, right. you know, because you have, to have other things, right. you know, you're not going to like live off royalties of one picture book, you know, on an Island in the Bahamas. It just isn't <laughs> going to happen. Again, I feel like we're targeting my, yeah. my, my method of working here, but point, uh, fair, fair point to make. Sophie can only have one squash at a time. She's got to put all her, all her, her effort towards that one squash. All their squashing yeah. one. Oh, yeah. yeah, totally. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I think to some to some extent the picture book market especially feels like feels a lot like a numbers game because you just, you know, across the board, like you have to write a lot of picture books. You have to query a lot of picture books to get the agent. Your agent has to sub a lot of picture books to get that sale. Like you have to sell then a lot of picture books to become financially independent. So the more Right. Right. And then they have to stay in print, you know, versus going out of print because then you don't get royalties. I I will say, like, because you just don't know. Like, I write a lot of books, a lot go out on sub. It's not like I'm sitting here going, okay, that one, that is the one that's going to hit the New York Times bestsellers. I had no idea Be Kind was going to take off the way that it did. It came out the same year that Wide Awake Bear did. They came out a couple months apart. So I kind of promoted them together. Mm-hmm. You know, Be Kind ended up just taking off Wide Awake Bear, which was adorable, if I say so <laughs> myself. You know? It sold, but it didn't sell well, you know? Um, so, you know, it could have been the other way around, you know, you just, you never know. So you just kind of got to, because once the book is out there, it's out of your control. You don't know if people are going to buy it, if they're going to love it, if they're going to go to page eight and like focus on something you did that they think is super offensive. And that's going to like become a social media sensation. You just, you have no idea. So a lot of this is like, I do the best I can, but then you've got to let it go, you know, and just let it be what it's going to be. Yeah, right. Those variables, I mean, they're impossible to account for. Cause yeah, like who? I mean, yeah, Be Kind is is an amazing book, but yeah, you did. I mean, you didn't know that it was gonna be a New York Times bestseller. Like, how could you have predicted that? You you couldn't. So, yeah, to nope. say that and you can't make it happen. You know, you no. can't say I'm gonna do this exact same thing. You can't. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's just like how people talk about writing to trends. I mean, it's it's an impossible thing to do. Like, there's no point in doing it, but because you know, for for no other reason except for the time lapse it takes for anything to happen in publishing, the trend will be over. Right. But beyond that, even if you write exactly what everybody is saying that they want, chances are that it it just won't sell very well because like you're writing the spec and maybe you don't care about that subject and what you know, like there's just there's a ton of stuff. You, so yeah, you've got to write something that you're passionate about because then if it works or if it doesn't, you still have that. And that's what totally. I've been doing a lot with some of my, my more recent stuff. I've, I've really, and I'm going to digress here, but I've really been passionate lately about the one thing I like about picture books is they give kids a wider view of the world and not just kids, anybody who reads them. Cause you know, we all know our little corner of the world and you tend to think that everybody else's corner of the world must be kind of like mine, but that's just a really limited way of thinking. And especially kids who haven't been exposed, they haven't traveled, they don't know. And so I think one of the coolest things picture books can do is, you know, is expand that view of the world to children in a way that's interesting and fun and thoughtful. And so almost everything I'm writing now kind of goes back to that theory. Um, And I'm normally not quite so conscious, but it's something that I really feel strongly about. And I sold one of them and the other one's out on sub and they're very different manuscripts, but that's kind of like what I'm trying to do now is like get that message out there. And especially I think in, you know, in the age of the book banning that's going on and, and, and the people, you know, trying to be so controlling about 
what kids are exposed to. I mean, you know, we live in this big, broad, beautiful, wonderful world, and we're more alike than we're different. And learning about people that are different from you is not a terrible thing. It's going to make you more empathetic, more understanding when you go out in the world and go to school and get a job and have to interact with people beyond your family. You know, it's it's just, it's necessary. Yes. And I, I we talked about this when Audrey Perot was on the podcast about her book coming out, Muhu, um, um, about, you know, being empathetic and, you know, feeling those big feelings and it, yeah, it's super important for kids, especially now after the pandemic and being so sort of like in this bubble, you know, like you can't do that. You can't touch that. You can't go there. You can't hang out with this kid. We can't yes. travel. We can't go into this place. Like, it's really hard to have that exposure for a kid. Like my own kid, it's been hard to teach him empathy because I feel like his little bubble, his little corner of the world is, you know, it's, it's a really nice corner. Like he, he loves his life. He's a real happy little guy, (laughs) but on the other, on the flip side, you know, teaching him empathy is something I really have to work at because he, you know, he does have a pretty, a pretty good life and he doesn't know outside of himself enough to understand like that person's circumstances are really rough or, you know, that this situation is really unfair or, you know, it's important to be kind to somebody because what if they're not kind to you? So, I mean, he's only six, but these lessons and these books are so, so important because yeah, they've been so just sheltered after the pandemic and all of the rest of it. And now with the book banning too, it's like, guys, we have to, at some point, get these books in these kids' hands so they can like, you know, expand their worldview a little bit because traveling and, you know, exposing them to different cultures and stuff just isn't, you know, a reality for a lot of people. It's just not going to happen. So we have to be able to do it other ways. Yeah. And if we don't do it, YouTube's going to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) And there's a lot worse stuff on YouTube than is in any picture book. I can guarantee that. (laughs) Unfortunately, nobody's banning YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Pat, we asked Tara, Tara this, and I think this brings us full circle. Uh, How do your kids feel about your work? Okay, well, this is, you know, they're 21 and 26 now, and they are very proud of me. Um, My 26-year-old daughter has told me that when she's on a date, you know, with someone new, and she mentions what her parents do, because my husband um, is a sports writer, um, she said it earns her major points, you know, that her mom is a a New York Times bestselling picture book author. I'm like, well, you know, happy to help. (laughs) Happy to contribute to your social capital. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, and my youngest daughter, Sonia, she, Sonia inspired Sophie Squash. It was totally based off. Sonia was Sophie, Aww. basically. I made some tweaks to reality to make it a better story, but Sonia was Aww. Sophie. Um, and so she, from little on, has been um, super supportive of my, of my work. But my favorite story to tell, you know, when, when Sophie Squash came out, Sonia was maybe, I should know this, 11, 10. You know, it had been inspired by her as a kid, but she was so proud that the book was about her. My older daughter was 16 um, and was, you know, a 16-year-old. So the box of books arrives, you know, your 25 free author copies, my very first ever published picture book. I'm opening the box. I'm holding Sophie Squash. I'm flipping through it. I'm so excited. My 16-year-old comes down, picks up a book, flips through it and goes, wow, mom, this almost looks legit. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I am going to hold that over her head till her, you know, dying day. It was just so teenage unimpressed. Yes. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. And that's the book that won, like, all the stuff, like, all the yeah. medals. Like, uh-huh. it's super yeah. legit. <laughs> I'm like, it is legit. And then she goes, <laughs> Random host published it. Right? She goes, what the, what the hell's a crystal kite, mom? Say yeah. it's legit. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Did you make this award up? <laughs> crystal kite. Oh. Yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And you, de- that was you dedicated your new several books I used books that in my Golden Kite acceptance yeah. speech. You you did? That's amazing. You said that in your speech? I threw it under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, okay, so we are at the top of the hour. Would you like to do your dead manuscript? I am so excited that you're going to participate. Right. This is embarrassing. I'm just <laughs> saying that out there. This is so bad. I wrote this in 2011, which was about the time that I sold Sophie Squash. But after I read this, you will see that Sophie Squash was probably the ana- anomaly. This, this, this is. I never intended this to be a picture book. It was going to be a poem. Oh, okay. okay, okay. And like I said before, you learn something from every horrible failure. This one did teach me how to rhyme, but 
once I read it and you're done laughing, I'll explain why it would never work. Okay, so it's called Toast Fever, that I will regret this. Okay. <clears throat> My parents love all the foods I hate the most. They cherish their truffles and standing rib roast. But honey-glazed ham hocks can't keep me engrossed. All I ever need is a good piece of toast. Why make cabbage strudel or homemade peach pies? Would good our poached parsnips or chili cheese fries? There's one thing I live for, just one thing I prize, a good piece of toast I can praise to the skies. Oh, wonderful, marvelous, glorious toast. Your fantastic flavor is known coast to coast. I'm sick with toast fever. It's been diagnosed. I'm always pursuing my next piece of toast. Few folks catch toast fever, I'm happy to say, but once you're infected, it does tend to stay. The treatment is simple and starts right away. Two pieces of toast eaten three times a day. Some kids love spaghetti or hot buttered peas. Some kids only want to eat apples with cheese. I can't understand being so hard to please. It just takes a toaster to feed me with ease. And it goes on, but oh my God, like no. Okay, so two takeaways. Toast fever makes me think of Bieber fever. I don't know why. And it's hair flip. So I'm envisioning like an animated piece of toast with Bieber hair. And also... Fever, toast fever is like an ode to my kid. The kid lives on carbs. He loves toast and crackers, and that is it. And I'm like, dude, you need more food in your food. <laughs> but um, amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. I Does mean, it <laughs> satisfy us with, with at least the ending that it ends on a, a realization that. Oh, uh, it, it ends. There's more um, to the world. Okay, so, you know, I had that. So it ends a wonderful, marvelous, glorious toast. Your fantastic flavor is known coast to coast. I'm sick with toast fever. It's been di diagnosed. So put down this poem and go make me some toast. <laughs> Nobody learns anything. Yes. Nobody learns anything. It doesn't pass the who cares test. I mean, like it just that's a that is a perfect flat arc. I love that. My six year old yes. kid, that's his life. Yeah. It's extremely relatable though. <laughs> Only thing better is butter. So there beers. we go. But it did teach me how to rhyme, or at least told me learn yeah. how to yes. rhyme. Yes, yes. So what so you said before you read it, you were like, I'm gonna tell you why this doesn't work. So what are your Nobody cares. Nobody cares. You know, whenever you write anything, and I, I, I get into this when I do critiques, you can have something that's really well structured and maybe really great rhyme, but if the reader doesn't care, like what is the compelling reason for them to pick this up and care about it? And okay, yeah, maybe it's mildly funny, but that's probably not enough of a reason. There's got to be like layers to it. It's got to be funny and have some heart and have some, oh, I've been there and some sort of takeaway. And like you said, this is just flat. Um, there's not enough flat there. like toast i mean yes flat like toast mm -hmm. <laughs> but it i mean no that's an incredible takeaway because it's yeah when you first start out writing and when you're first critiquing too because i remember when i you know i'm trying really hard to like give this good feedback and like what do i like about this what what works about this why do i not want to like you know continue reading through or whatever you know to sort of be like give productive feedback and so you sort of develop this like checklist in your brain. And, and that is one of the things it's like, why do I care about this? Like, what is my investment? Do I, do I care about the main character? Is, you know, it, yeah. Is there a hook in there that I can relate to? Is there, is there something else pulling you through? Especially. Do I want to go back and read it yes, again? Yes. You know? Especially as somebody who tends to, to write funny, like quirky stuff, like, Yes, I want it to be funny, and that is what I'm going for ultimately because I think that kids need to laugh, especially now in this day and age. However, if I don't have something else in there, I mean, that's not doing anything for anyone. Like, I want to laugh, yes, and then but say, like, when, when, when people finish reading what you've read, will it linger with them? You know, when they close the final cover, you want it to stay with them on some level, you know, and not just be like gone, poof, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Just sort of like reading through it. And it's just like another like, you know, just like like white noise, I guess. Like it has to it has to stand out. This market is so oversaturated at every level. It just if it doesn't it have something that, yeah, like you're saying, will stick with you when you close that book, then I mean, you got to go back and rethink. Yeah, I love the allegory here that we're, we're talking about creative work in, in the same sense as, you know, eating a piece of toast. It needs more than more than just itself to really shine. 
peanut butter or jelly <laughs> or butter or <laughs> hot buttered parsnips. And then there's the whole keto diet yeah. and low carb thing. I mean, toast is, you know, it might have missed. Its yeah, time. right. I, I mean, yeah, there might be like a subsequent book like keto toast. I don't know. There's like a <laughs> there's a market there. <laughs> yeah. Toast fever really shines in its back matter where it shares all the recipes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, Pat, thank you so, so much for coming on. I, I just, I always marvel when people say yes to us because I feel like, you know, nobody really knows who we are. And so your generosity with your time and saying yes and, you know, being agreeable to coming on and chatting with us. I just, thank you so much. It's been such an honor and a joy to talk to you. Oh, thanks for having me. This was so much fun. Oh, I'm so glad. Thanks for listening this week. Find all of our episodes and other associated links and information at linktree.com slash verse show. Or reach out to us on Twitter. Thanks again, and we'll see you next verse. Bye.